Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast, uh, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. Today I get to speak with Dr. Michael Sluber, who's Associate Professor at Western Washington University. And we're talking about a really, really rich, exciting, fascinating uh, new volume called A Garland of Forgotten Goddesses, Tales of the Feminine Divine from India and Beyond, hot off the presses in 2020. Um, welcome to the program, Michael. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. So this is brand new. I was reading uh, reading your preface. I was astonished at the date. <laughs> it's uh-huh. dated actually today's date, <laughs> September 30th, <laughs> 2020. I had this surreal moment. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Timely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We- we didn't plan that, but you know, the stars have the stars have aligned. It seems. Yeah, it won't officially be released uh, available to buy until December, but it's it's coming soon. Coming soon, so get excited, and I'm sure people can pre-order it if they so desire. Yes. Now, what is um, what is the Garland of Forgotten Goddesses all about? What's the what's the overarching theme that that unites these papers? Sure. So, um, I mean, one thing I want to make really clear at the beginning is it's, it's different than other edited volumes. So it's not like a collection of, of research papers so much as it is uh, an anthology of primary sources. And so that's something that um, reviewers, even, the, you know, when I was trying to get this book published, I was having a hard time kind of conveying to reviewers because it's something totally new. In the field of goddess studies, we don't have a volume like this that is introducing uh, different goddess traditions from different parts of, of India and other places um, through narratives. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's different than just another volume of, of, of edited primary or edited um, contributions to, to scholarship. It's, uh, it's really meant as a tool for general readers or for, for teaching. So that's, that, that itself is fascinating, and, and um, it's great. It's, it's a collection of these really rich stories uh, from various parts of India about various uh, goddesses. And, you know, I'm slightly biased considering um, <laughs> my scholarship is centered around narratives of goddesses, but <laughs> I'm sure that there are many out there who would uh, just love the accessibility of these narratives, which prior to this anthology really wouldn't be accessible unless one was um, conversant in their, in, 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 in the native tongue um, and were able to read manuscripts. Is that right? Is that fair? Right. That's, that's the case with quite a few of the sources. Um, you know, some, none of them were available in English before, but um, some of them weren't even available in printed editions. So they're only, some of them were only accessible through manuscripts until, until this book. So yeah, that makes it quite exciting. It's uh, original, new material. So that's, that's one of the big points of the book. So it's an anthology of primary source narratives uh, about forgotten goddesses. Forgotten how or by whom? Right. So that's, um, that's something uh, I, I explain kind of carefully because it's, it's possible to misinterpret that. Um, some of the goddesses are absolutely not forgotten. We have, um, you know, a chapter on Kameshwari, which is another name for Tripura Sundari. And so she, for example, has millions of active followers um, in, in India and other places. And so we use the term forgotten in different senses, depending on which chapter and which goddess that we're talking about. Some of them are absolutely forgotten and there's, you know, there most people would never have heard of them, um, despite their stories being really fascinating. Um, but others like, like Tripura Sundari um, are very much part of living traditions, but uh, the, the sources that we're translating are unique and they're, you know, among the earliest that exist and they're sources that people just haven't heard of before um, because not very many people are, are reading manuscripts. Tell us maybe a little bit about the structure of the anthology. There are three uh, sections, for example. How are the, uh, the, the, the papers grouped? Sure. So, um, yeah, the three sections are dividing into demons and battles. So it's kind of by theme of the, of the uh, stories themselves. So the first four are about um, goddesses fighting demons, which is typically um, the case in a lot of these narratives. Um, in some of the other, so the, the second section is miracles and devotees. Um, we also get mentions of battle um, in, in these chapters, but it really takes a backseat to 
uh, stories of how the devotees interact with the goddess and different miracles that the goddesses uh, perform for the devotees. So um, I've also organized the papers in the volume based on accessibility so that the easier to read and grasp uh, stories are, are closer to the beginning. And then it gets slightly more complicated as we come to the third and last section, which is Tantra and Tantras and magic. Um, so, you know, some of these sources are pure narratives, uh, but a couple of the last ones are translations directly from tantric ritual texts, which are describing how to visualize the goddess or um, sort of presenting a, a mystical position on the nature of the goddess, as is the case in the final chapter. Um, do you want to say, sorry, go on, please. No, go no, on. no, go ahead. I was going to say, do you want to say a little bit about this tension of, um, uh, well, 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 maybe we'll do them separately, but first regional and trans-regional. I want to say a little bit about that. That's really important to this volume, isn't it? Yeah, sure. Um, so that's definitely important. There's there's a, an interplay that we can see embedded in these texts of local identities that change as the, the goddess becomes very popular and as the goddess's identity gets sort of hitched or, or yoked, you know, linked with, with the identity of a more pan-Indian goddess or, um, you know, certain elements of a pan-Indian story like the Devi Mahatmya come to have a very essential role in uh, the local narratives. And so the ways that th these two sort of identities get meshed is, is on display throughout the book. Um, and it influences the, the trajectory of the goddess's development. So, you know, she might start, one example I, I give is uh, chapter two, the, these two goddesses from Mysuru in South India, um, they, start out as Grama Devata. They are protectors of a local place. They're identified with the hills near this near the city of Mysore. Um, but then, you know, through these this interconnections with the, the narrative of the slaying of the buffalo demon, most famous through uh, the Devi Mahatmya, um, the goddess Chamundi, the principal goddess of, of these two sisters, uh, comes to be presented more like Durga. So her name is Chamundi, and this sounds very much like a fearsome Kali-like goddess, but like that, that dimension of her identity, assuming that it was there, we don't have records that it was there, but, but judging by her name, uh, that, that local aspect of her identity, identity was kind of erased as she is presented to uh, the, the larger audience of pilgrims from all over India that want to come to the very place where the goddess is supposed to have, have fought with the buffalo demon and, and killed him. And then interestingly in that chapter, her, um, her sister takes on all the qualities of Durga. So her sister is named Uttanahali, and she's from a village nearby. Um, and she takes on all the fearsome qualities and she does some of the fighting. And um, so, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, even though on the one hand, Hindus believe that all the goddesses are one and, you know, there's no difference between Kali and Durga, for example, um, there's still a power behind these separate identities that, that we can see because there was a need to shift from Chamundi to make her like Durga as, we're, you know, it's, as it's being presented to a trans-regional audience. So this, you know, this is an absolutely fascinating tension. You're talking about a, a contribution by Caleb Simmons. Actually, a couple of the contributors have been on the program before. Jessica has as well. Yes. Um, um, so for folks who are interested in these topics, there are other podcasts uh, um, you can check out. Um, it, it, so it's fascinating, right? You have this local, this local, uh, this goddess, this Grama Devata to, 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 to Mysore called Chamundi. Mm -hmm. And you have this narrative of, 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 of her slaying the buffalo demon. So um, for those listening, would you say it's such that uh, that was a local myth that was also folded into the Devi Mahatma Pan Indic myth of, of the Devi or vice versa? Or how, how would you describe that relationship for people who may not quite grasp it? Sure. I mean, we don't know for sure because what we have in the source that's translated is, is a modern story, modern story through a singing tradition from the Kamsale community in southern Karnataka. Um, so we don't know exactly how far back these songs go. I think it's more likely that the, you know, the, the story of killing the buffalo demon goes back far, far earlier and that at some point in history, uh, this goddess Chamundi was linked to that story. Um, but we, you know, 
this is just a, a, a hypothetical um, description of what might have happened. We, we don't have records in this case of exactly how far back this story goes with Chamundi beyond like the 15th century. I mean, we have, we have records of it going back that far, the association between Chamundi and the local king of Mysore. Um, but beyond that, we, we don't have good evidence. There are other examples in terms of um, entries in the anthology that, um, that really play with this idea of regional and trans-regional, uh, mm. similar to the Chamundi. Do you want to cite some other examples? Yeah, sure. Let me, let me glance at my notes here to pick one. Um, yeah, I mean, certainly it's, it's there throughout all, almost all of them. Um, but yeah, let's talk about the first chapter uh, called Badrakali, Slaying the Demon in the Backwaters by Noor van Brussel, a scholar from Belgium. Um, so yeah, this story is a very interesting mix of influences. I mean, on the one hand, there's uh, references to Badrakali or a goddess like Badrakali, um, Korava, you've, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with, um, who goes all the way back to the classical Tamil uh, story, Silapatikaram. And so that's part of the influence, but there's certainly influence from the Devi Mahatmya. There's certainly interconnections with the Devi Purana story of the seven mothers slaying the, the demon Ruru. Um, so there's all these various uh, interweaving uh, connections that inform this uh, sort of late medieval a local Purana from Kerala called the, the Bhadrakali Mahatmya. Um, so yeah, the goddess's identity is a patchwork basically, um, but uh, it's, yeah, it's very fascinating how the story comes together and how it's unique, um, you know, in, in contrast to all the other influences. It, it's at once um, similar to stories that people will have heard from other places, but it's also very unique. For example, it has, um, a lot of emphasis on the demon Darika, his backstory, sort of um, his sense of injustice at the gods mistreating his race um, and, you know, basically performing a genocide on all of his, his forefathers. And so he wants to get revenge on the gods. So the way the story is told really kind of makes the reader um, almost empathize with the, the demonic character, which is, which is strange. It's not, not the typical um, uh, narrative device. Um, and then you, you get these goddesses, uh, Badrakali herself, a fearsome goddess, but then she, she partners up with a goddess named Vaitali, um, normally means something like a female vampire. Um, and this, this Vaitali is very bloodthirsty, so it's almost like the demons become, the, the demons become humanized and the goddesses become demonized. So it's at once unique to the local place and rooted in performance traditions in Kerala, but at the same time, interwoven with uh, more trans-regional themes and stories. It's a really, really fascinating narrative. Now, um, just by chance, uh, there's a, a special volume in religions on, on violence and the goddess. And uh, Noor ended up contributing a, a paper to that. And, and what's well, after the fact, now it's already published. So I guess I can mention that, you know, uh, I ended up being one of the reviewers. And I was so fascinated by the content of the paper that when once it was already published, and I knew Noor from the conference circuit, uh, um, Mm -hmm. I approached her and said, look, like there's, I mean, have you done a comparison of the Devi Mahatmya and this regional Kerala Bandarakali Mahatmya? And she's like, you know, you're like the seventh person that says I should do that. I'm like, well, why don't we do that? So we're actually in the process of eking out, um, <laughs> it's delayed due to my, my writing schedule right now, but of eking out a, a comparison to show the extent to which they're, 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 one draws from the other and the extent to which they're very different. But this idea of a sort of uh, humanizing the demons. Uh, uh, there's a, there's a, a, a there's a, a scene that's so startling where um, the the goddess Badrakali is she's feeling compassion for Taruka. She doesn't want to kill him because he's begging for his life. And the gods basically say, like, don't be possessed by this demon compassion. You know, go <laughs> get over yourself. Go. Don't let this demon of compassion, you know, sway you out of your dharma. And it's so fascinating, right? Right. Right. <laughs> Anyhow. And that sort of thing comes up again in one of the other chapters. Um, let me see. I, I believe it was the chapter on Bahuchara from Gujarat. And uh, yeah, she, she takes the form of a young girl and there's this demon that's not 
totally evil. Um, you know, he, he sort of, he's almost vegetarian that everyone's telling him because there's no food around, he should uh, just drink the blood of animals and he refuses to do that. And he's this devotee of the goddess. Um, but then he says that he, um, he like is feigning sexual attraction to her in order to make her angry so that she will kill him so that he'll go to heaven because anyone killed by the goddess will go straight to heaven. So we get this, this interesting relationship between them and um, uh, yeah, interesting way that they, that they uh, communicate. Fascinating. Do you want to, you know, um, I, I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot, but do you want to make mention, just a brief mention of all of the contributions so we don't leave anybody, anyone else? I know we talked about Norse paper and Caleb's paper, chapters one and two. Sure. Um, yeah, maybe that, maybe we'll do it systematically that for, just to make sure that we don't leave anyone out. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, those were chapters one and two in this first section on demons in battle. Um, the third one is uh, called Kaushiki, the Virgin Demon Slayer. And uh, let's see. So, yeah, this one comes from Kashmir. Um, there are some elements that readers will recognize from the Devi Mahatmya, but another a major difference is that the, the goddess, like in this story that I mentioned about Bahuchara, she's presented as a young girl, in this case, an eight-year-old girl. Um, so actually, if you wouldn't mind, I'd, I would like to read just a page and a half or so from this story. Not only, not only would I not mind that, I'd, I'd actually love that. I was going to suggest that uh, we give some of the, the, the flavor, right? It's narrative. So please, by all means. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm picking up in the middle of the story. So there's some background, but, but basically we've, we've got these demons that um, can only be killed by a female. We have the goddess Kaushiki, um, also called Durga, but we're going with uh, the name Kaushiki in this story, um, who is, a, a, she, she's an eight-year-old girl living on the Vindhya Mountains alone. And so the gods, in order to get the demons to take interest in her, um, send Narada down and he basically talks her up as this very beautiful jewel and the most beautiful, you know, woman in the world, even though she's a young girl. Um, so, you know, it's this interesting uh, tension about attraction toward a prepubescent girl, which the gods are absolutely not trying to encourage, but they're trying to get the demons to feel it so that they are, um, you know, going to be open to being killed by her. So, so that's kind of the background. Uh, the demons get interested after Narada tells them about her. Uh, they send, they, 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 they talk about, you know, how they should approach her and they decide, well, she might get scared because we're, she's just a little girl and we're a bunch of demons. So let's send uh, the demon among us called Barbarian, Barbara. And, uh, you know, he's kind of gently speaking. So this is, this is in itself is a strange uh, description of a demon, but a uh, very humanized kind of description. But he goes and he's, uh, you know, some, some things happen, but basically now they're talking, he's talking to the goddess. Um, so Barbarian, whose mind was completely deluded and whose body was tightly bound, he started speaking. The Lord of demons who has conquered all the gods, demons and humans, and is now the ruler of the universe, has decided to choose you as his wife, O beautiful goddess. With due respect, a girl must be given in marriage. And where could one find a husband like him? So consider yourself to be honored to be his wife. That is what I suggest. When she heard him speak in this way, the charming goddess smiled gently and with a brow slightly raised spoke these sweet words. Indeed, a woman must have a husband and a man must have a loving wife. Which woman would not desire such a handsome man who is also the richest in the world? All righteous men know, however, that only the father can give a daughter in marriage. She may also organize a marriage contest for herself or alternately she can be taken by force. So she's laying out these, these three options. I do not know who my father was, so who else could give me in marriage? And I have no notion of what is appropriate, so I cannot hold a marriage contest. Now, what else can I say? The Lord of Demons is powerful. If he takes a wife for himself by force, what else could be more appropriate? You should go and tell him about this, barbarian. I command you, Panchala, to release the ogres from the chains. After these words of the goddess, Panchala released them. Seeing, seeing them without the chains, Kaushiki spoke again. These ogres who have been produced from barbarians' body are my followers called the barbarians. They are uh, without the sins of greed and egotism. By looking at me, they have become valiant. These barbarians shall only think of me. Even those mortals who are born in their lineage shall obtain the highest good, since they will also be purified by their devotion to me. 
When Durga spoke in this way, all the ogres produced from barbarians' bodies started worshiping the mother of the three worlds with great devotion. In the meantime, barbarian, released by the great goddess, quickly went to see the demons who wished to possess her and said to them, I have seen that young and beautiful girl. Indeed, there's nothing comparable to her in the other worlds. She's the mother of the whole universe and shines forth with energy. Her servant, Panchala, is the powerful king of Yakshas. After this speech, Barbarian explained what the goddess had told him, and the demons became totally blinded as they were heading toward their fate. We shall all go there, they said in their lust, and climbed up the Vindhya mountain by the pathways going upward. As their feet were stomping everywhere, the Vindhya was trembling like a tree hit by a storm. The gods headed by Indra honored Vishnu and went to the peak of the Vindhya, eager to see the fight. So... Yeah, I'll stop there, so I'm not giving too much away, but we know that there's a big fight coming, and, um, and uh, yeah, no it's, it's for, a very well-told story. No need for spoiler alerts here. <laughs> That's great. Um, so uh, what about the fourth one in the, in the Demons in Battle? Uh, yeah. Okay, the fourth one is uh, The Seven Mothers, Origin Tales from Two Early Medieval Piranhas by Shaman Hatley. And uh, this includes the very earliest source that we translated in the, in the volume. This is a passage from the original 6th century Skanda Purana um, on the origin of the seven mothers. It's a very short one, only two pages. So I asked uh, Dr. Hatley to include one other story as well. So we also translated part of the Devi, Devi Purana, which is a century or two later, um, not easily uh, assigned to a date, that one. Um, but yeah, these, these two accounts are fairly different. What I find fascinating about them is that the first one gives a fairly standard uh, short explanation of the seven mothers being produced from the male Brahminical gods, Shiva, Vishnu, etc. Um, whereas the latter one, you know, sort of hints that that's the case, but then asserts that the goddesses ultimately come from the supreme divinity, which, which the Devi Purana identifies as the supreme Shakti. So it's definitely a more female-centered approach than uh, the, the older Skanda Purana story. You raise, a, you raise a really interesting point there that I, I believe you flesh out in your, in your, your introduction. And so, well, uh, you know, in terms of the history of religion or comparative religion, you know, you know God as a she is something that may not be as... Um, as sort of um, well established <laughs> as it is in India, but this put idea, it mildly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm currently teaching undergrads a survey religion course, and it just reminds me. It's allowing me to see Hinduism more clearly by teaching Abrahamic religions. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. But um, but uh, so but but just because there are feminine faces, right? There's a feminine divine. Uh, uh, you know, this doesn't necessarily mean that the narratives are bereft of patriarchy, for example. You'd yeah, agree. correct. So maybe say a quick note about that, because I think that's an interesting, uh, an interesting point to safeguard people from sort of thinking, well, you know, if we had more uh, female goddesses, we'd have less patriarchy. <laughs> it's not necessarily the case. Right, not necessarily. Although uh, you know, it's it's a very complex question. I also deal with this in my in my teaching because uh, many people come to the class. Uh, they they want to learn about goddesses, and they they think that this is going to be a resource for feminism. And sometimes it is, and in some ways it is uh, absolutely. But in other ways, sort of the larger picture of um, not only India but pretty much the whole world is that almost every culture is patriarchal to some degree, and so we see that. Um, we see that in the United States and Canada, obviously. Um, we see that um, in India as well. So, you know, all of the stories have some kind of patriarchal stamp to them, but some more than others, and some resist that in interesting ways. So um, it's, it's, it's absolutely a mix. So maybe you could tell us about uh, the papers in part two, Miracles and Devotees. Sure. So the first one is by Jessica Vantine Birkenholtz, who you mentioned has been on the show before. Um, and this is called Swastani, the Goddess of One's Own Place. Um, and she's, she's recently published a, a book with Oxford um, called Reciting the Goddess on the this, this same uh, goddess and her tradition. So for our book, she translated the very oldest version of this story, which was written in Sanskrit. Most of the versions that, that came later were uh, written in Newari. And then nowadays, uh, most people are accessing it through Nepali. Um, but the, yeah, the oldest one is a 500-year-old manuscript uh, in Sanskrit. So it's, it's fairly concise, and it tells the story of the goddess Swastani 
and the secret pledge that devotees can perform to honor her and the various blessings that she gives to, to people that perform the, the, the vow or the pledge, the vrata. Um, so yeah, so Astani is a goddess that millions of Hindus in Nepal cherish. So in, she, she's not forgotten in the sense that people on the ground in Nepal don't know about her. Everyone knows about Swastani. Um, but you know, there's interesting ways that she is forgotten in a larger context. You would never hear about Swastani in a, in, you know, a textbook about Hinduism, for example. Um, and also even within her tradition in Nepal, the text has grown over the, the last five centuries to into this virtual local Purana. And, you know, uh, Birkenholtz points out that most of the material in the, this expanded Swastani text is, uh, is dedicated to male gods and not to Swastani herself. So it's almost like she's been displaced within her own textual tradition just because of the way the, the text grew over time. Well, it's an interesting point you may make in that, you know, this idea of forgotten. She, she's certainly not forgotten by the people who, who worship her. Uh, but, you know, take myself as, as an example. Um, I study Indian goddess traditions. And until Jessica's paper at, at Madison a few years ago on this goddess, I had never heard of her, you know. Yeah, right. And, and but, um, maybe it's just my, my own ignorance. But I think, but for Jessica's work, I think that would apply to a number of us, I imagine. Yeah. And I mean, ne Nepalese Hindu traditions tend to be off the radar of, of scholars that don't work directly in Nepal. So, you know, it's, it's understandable, but I think it doesn't have to be this way. I think it's just as fitting as, as a, of a way to introduce uh, general, general readers to, um, to Hindu goddess traditions as it is to start with uh, more mainstream text and, and goddesses. Sure. Maybe let's talk, move on to Jeremy Saul's paper. Yeah, so this is chapter six, Kaila Devi, the great goddess's local avatar of miracles. And um, yeah, Kaila Devi's a goddess from Rajasthan. And uh, this is one of two stories in the book, uh, this chapter and the next, which are both translated on the basis of um, basically little pilgrims booklets that are available in, in the market stalls around their temples in Rajasthan and Gujarat. Um, so it's a different sort of source. These are modern sources, perhaps based on some older older stories that were passed down orally. But um, you know, these are these are targeted to people that are coming in recent times to the temple and basically telling telling the backstory about each of the goddesses. So um, yeah, it can be a refreshing change of pace to switch to a more um, modern type of type of narrative. Um, so, yeah, with Kaila Devi, we get this very, very brief mention of her fighting demons. You know, this is kind of the requisite backstory. Um, but really, the vast majority of the, of the tale is about all the miracles that she performs uh, and her interactions with, uh, with yogis and babas and, you know, various, various people in the local area. Um, specific sites are mentioned, specific dates are given, which is something we don't see in older, older texts, which tend to be sort of delinked from place and time. Um, so yeah, everyday practices like deity possession, animal sacrifice also um, play a role here. Um, and so yeah, I'm focusing on these, the, the narratives themselves, but the essays often also like flesh out more context about them. Uh, in this case, uh, Jeremy Saul's essay talks, among other things, about uh, the politics of animal sacrifice at Kaila Devi Shrine. It's absolutely forbidden nowadays um, and uh, basically presented as something that would have never happened, but um, it still does happen kind of on the fringes of the village, uh, you know, in, in the dark of night. So it's something that probably in the past happened much more frequently, and it is mentioned in the narrative, but, um, you know, nowadays it's, 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 been cleansed in a sense it's you know people have are, are less comfortable with 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 blood offerings and so this is um being downplayed yeah this 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 fascinating uh snippet even from you know when when sort of the goddess was uh, dipping her toe into the brahmanic tradition through the devi mahatmya i mean this is her first appearance mm -hmm. and yet you, you have this this very evocative uh mention in the in in chapter 13 the end frame where the merchant and the king offer her you know uh, with flowers and incense and water and the blood of their own limbs you know mm -hmm. it's evocative right it's mm -hmm. there's obviously more going on <laughs> in the world behind the text that the text isn't um particularly forthcoming about it seems right it's fascinating how about the next paper 
Yeah, uh, on Bahucharamata from Gujarat, uh, subtitle, She Who Roams Widely. So we're kind of glossing the, the literal meaning of, of her name, Bahuchara. So this is a goddess who, um, you know, it's, it's an interesting story in terms of how identity shifts over time, because this is a goddess that originally was most closely affiliated with um, non-elite groups, such as the chan transgender hijras or pavayas, um, as they call them in Gujarat, and various other non-elite groups. There was a Muslim community, there is a Muslim community associated with her temper, the Kamalias, who um, are also devotees of the goddess. Um, but all of this has changed as she's shot to popularity in the last um, several decades, especially, but I'm sure this was going on for, for longer than that. So you get people coming from all over India. We have big names like Narendra Modi coming and paying homage to Bahuchara. Um, so she's really central to just about everyone in Gujarat. And so this, this rise to popularity has led to her story being, again, kind of whitewashed. Um, the specifics of her ties with, with the transgender community is really downplayed. Only at the very end of the story that we translated uh, is this affiliation with, with transgender subjects uh, brought up. And it's brought up in, in this way that um, basically is saying that um, unmanly men can go bathe in this, this uh, lake nearby and achieve true manliness. So it's this very kind of heteronormative view, even though it involves uh, a shifting of gender identities. It's, it's sort of, you know, no, they can cure their, their homosexuality or their, their um, transgender identity by bathing in the temple. So this is in sharp contrast to the other sort of narratives about Bahuchara, which, uh, which Derry Dinell lays out in the essay portion. So he, these other narratives talk about um, you know, a more radical understanding of femininity that, that comes out of these non-elite groups. Uh, so one of the stories talks about the goddess cutting off her own breast to avoid um, being raped. Another one has her castrate the would-be rapist. So, you know, very graphic things that were, were edited out. They were, they were downplayed in the, the story that's presented to pilgrims in, in more recent times. So essentially, uh, the, the text literally says, you know, unmanly men can go jump in a lake. Yeah, and they can become manly again. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, let's move on to the next paper. Sure. Uh, Rasana, the hawk goddess of the Mewar Mountains. So this one is also from, from Rajasthan, southern Rajasthan. And so this is a goddess that appears in two forms. She either appears under the name Rastrasena, um, literally meaning something like army of the kingdom, uh, and this is a human-like form, or a slightly different name, Rasta Shiena, or the, the royal lady hawk, who plays the same role um, as protectress of the kingdom, uh, she, with her temple located atop a, a hill near uh, Udaipur that is very militarily strategic. It's like, you know, an outpost that you can see bird's eye view, 360 degrees. So she takes the form of a, a female hawk uh, un under that name. So um, let's see, yeah, the, the essay itself unpacks different linkages between this animal hybrid goddess and the Bill tribe, it theorizes that it possibly she came about, she was incorporated into the local pantheon uh, from the Bill tribe in order to um, form an alliance with them because they were often rebelling against the, the local kingdom. Um, but also traces these connections with other animal hybrid goddesses going back to the original Skanda Purana and, and even earlier, I think there's some mentions in the Mahabharata of um, these sorts of, of maters or, or mothers that have animal, animal features um, that are sort of the, the genre from which Rastoshiena arises. Okay, so... Um, that brings us to part three. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, tantras um, and magic. And it so, probably it's probably useful to state as you do that. For, we'll need to state this for the rest of time in the English-speaking world, especially that while tantras, uh, while tantra is often equated with uh, black magic and or ritualized sex, uh, it's much more than that. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, there may be uh, elements of black magic and or ritualized sex in tantra. <laughs> but there's much more than that, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Absolutely. Please, please yeah. I, the, the stories in this book uh, that, that we've selected do have these sorts of dimensions of sexuality and magic, 
but at the same time, you know, I wrote a whole book on, on a tantric medical tradition that really has practically no connection to sexuality at all. So, um, yeah, the tantras were a very broad category, um, and only certain subsets of them had, had affiliations with, with magic and sexuality. But, um, you know, these themes make for good stories. And so we've selected some stories that tell really interesting, uh, interesting tales that, that involve these themes. Okay, so, um, yeah, chapter nine is on Rangda from, uh, from Bali. This is a translation of the Chalung Arang. This is a story from medieval Indonesia, um, written in old Javanese, um, translated by Tom Hunter and Ari Wayan. And so this is a great reminder that Hinduism is not limited to South Asia. Um, it has a much broader reach, especially in Southeast Asia, but in other parts of Asia as well. So yeah, I would have liked to include more sources like this on Hinduism in Japan, for example, Hinduism in Central Asia, um, the, the various ways that the influence spread. But um, so this story is an exciting narrative about a witch who calls down a gruesome epidemic. So this is kind of timely for our current pandemic situation. Uh, but this witch named Rangda, uh, she is a widow and her daughter has been mistreated by other people in the kingdom. And so she, she prays to Durga using these tantric sort of black magic uh, practices. At least that's how it's perceived. That's how she perceives it. Um, to call down an epidemic on the whole kingdom. And so Durga's kind of like, well, this isn't such a good idea, but, you know, okay, I'll, I'll, let, you, I'll let you do this. We'll see how it turns out. Um, so some very gruesome descriptions of the, the deaths that happen from, from this epidemic that's spreading. Um, but, you know, essentially it's all resolved in the end. Uh, spoiler alert. But... Um, yeah, uh, a, a semi-divine sage intervenes, uh, Durga herself gets involved, and the, the tension of the story is, is brought to a close at the end. Uh, basically, they realize that the, the tantric text that the, the witch was using to cause all of this trouble, actually she was misinterpreting it, that it, it wasn't a book about black magic, it was actually instructions on how to achieve spiritual liberation, but she was putting it to uh, an, an unintended use. So... Um, yeah, that's a theme we often see with the tantras that um, that ultimately it's about liberation, but people people put it to they, people misuse it in various ways. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, maybe many a, many a person on some sort of uh, tantric retreat in the West will end up being liberated uh, unintentionally. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the next paper by one Michael Sluber. Okay, myself, Michael Sluber. Um, and yeah, this is, a, this is a story that I've been working on, had started to work on about 12 years ago. And I was actually going to publish a translation of it, the same translation, I, I revised it, of course, uh, but I was going to publish it 12 years ago in a, a different colleague's uh, collection of, of translated sources on Tantra. Um, that never came to pass, it never came to fruition. So I've just um, sort of taken it and made the book happen on my own, my own vision of the book. Um, so yeah, when I was originally working on this, I suspected that there was some kind of connection between the goddess that the story is about, Tuarita, and this royal goddess of Nepal named Taleju. This is the same goddess that is thought to possess the, the virgin girls in the famous Nepalese Kumari tradition. And so I suspected that there was the connection there because um, one day when I was living in Kathmandu, I lived there for about a year, and I was walking on the banks of the Bagmati River, and I came across this inscription. I took a photograph of it. Um, it. It didn't look like a particularly old inscription, but anyway, it said Tulaja Kumari Devi. So there was that, that name Tulaja, which in Maharashtra is used uh, to refer to the goddess Twarita. So there was some connection there. Uh, this planted the seed in my mind that there's a connection between this goddess from this, you know, 800, 900 year old text that I had, had found in the archives and this modern Kumari tradition in Nepal that's, that's centrally important to, um, to the erstwhile uh, royal, royal family. So um, yeah, the story itself is, is very interesting. It doesn't make connections to Nepal, so it must have originated um, further back in time. 
But in the essay, I basically trace that the goddess and this story were brought into Nepal and sometime between the 11th and the 13th century, and that she was adapted into this new royal goddess, Taleju. Um, so yeah, I could tell you a little bit about the, the story itself too, if we have time. I don't want to talk too much sure about it. Sure, we have. Well, uh, first of all, um, it's your job to talk more than me. <laughs> <laughs> so we do have time, uh, and you are probably a typical self-effacing scholar. And don't worry, you're not promoting yourself. It's me promoting <laughs> you. I'm doing the promoting. I'll take, I'll take the heat. Please okay. tell, us about, tell us about the article. <laughs> Okay, so this, yeah, the story itself um, tells about Shiva participating in some sort of secretive ritual with a group of yoginis. What exactly was intended to happen in this ritual is not clear. The story doesn't give any specifics, but it mentions a few like it mentions a few euphemistic terms like charu, which normally means rice pudding, you know, some kind of benign thing that would be offered in a ritual. But here, it it certainly means something different, and so basically, my conclusion is that this either means uh, something sexual or it's some kind of reckless self-sacrifice that Shiva would have been offering his own flesh and blood for the yoginis to eat. And so in, in either case, however we interpret these, these euphemistic words, Parvati gets very upset when she hears that Shiva is involved in this ritual. And so she generates herself as Twarita, this, this goddess that you know, blinds everyone with her light and frightens the whole universe and basically is threatening to destroy everything until she can be um, pacified by, by the various other gods that, that praise all her qualities. So, um, yeah, lots of interesting themes going on in this story and linkages to, uh, to royal patrons. So it's just, just subtle hints, but we get the sense that the authors of this story were trying to appeal to royal patrons that uh, if you get this goddess on your side, you can use her to fight enemy kingdoms. And so, yeah, this is, this is a sort of genre of, of goddesses as protectors of royal lineages that Bihani Sarkar has, has written about in a, in a book just, just a couple, in the last year or two. Uh, heroic Shaktism, I believe. Right, yeah, Heroic Shaktism, thank you. Um, um, great, fantastic. So, yeah, evidently um, that, that attempt to market Warita to a royal audience worked in the case of Nepal because she she seems to have been adapted as the royal goddess there. Uh, it's so fascinating. Uh, there's 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 I mean uh, there's just so many themes at play in, in these various uh, narratives that that overlap and, and differ from one another all at the same time. Uh, so there are two more narratives. Uh, next we go to the lovely Kameshwari. Right. Uh, What's going on there? So-called goddess of de desire. So um, yeah, this is a direct translation from a tantric ritual text, which uh, several different ritual texts uh, that are describing how a tantric uh, practitioner should visualize Kameshwari. So it uses heavily erotic imagery. Uh, the oldest of the sources is called the Nitya Kaula. And this comes from the, this, er, the earliest phase that we know of about the goddess Kameshwari before she was identified with Tripura Sundari, before she was identified with Parvati, um, Shiva, and all of that, she seems to have been presented as the consort of Kamadeva in this cult to Kamadeva, which has since died out. So all of in, the, the only evidence for this, this cult survives in this one uh, damaged manuscript of the Nitya Kaula from Nepal, um, which is yeah, something like 800 or 900 years old. Uh, so two of the passages, short passages that are translated is based on that. Um, so yeah, like I said, heavily erotic imagery, lots of use of uh, the color red and sexual, sexual kind of imagery of, of how we uh, imagine, imagine the goddess. So uh, the, the other passages are from slightly later stages from texts from the 10th, 11th century that, um, that then do link her with Tripura Sundari and the whole Sri Vidya tradition. And so, yeah, it's this, this complicated uh, development that we see in, in her identity. So heavily visual because it's, it's a meditation guide. And the final entry. Mm -hmm. Avyapadesha or indefinable Kali. So this is a form of Kali which probably nobody has heard of before. Um, because this is a text that almost nobody has worked on. A, a centrally important goddess text from the, the first millennium, you know, over, it's over a thousand years old, called the Jayadratha Yamala. 
And the translator of this chapter, Olga Surbaeva, Olga Surbaeva is the pretty much the only person in the world that is working on the Jayadratha Yamala. And this is this massive text of about 24,000 verses, and it details over a hundred different forms of Kali um, and describes how she should be worshipped and how she should be visualized. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's this very strange situation where uh, we have these really, really important early texts on goddesses, but hardly anyone is paying attention to them. So this is one, one of the most important chapters in the book in, in the sense of conveying these, these texts that are essential for the history of, of Hindu goddess worship. Um, but almost nobody is reading because they're, they're not available in editions. They're only available in, in manuscripts. Um, so the chapter itself, uh, I mean, the, the, the narrative itself is basically this mystical presentation of the goddess as being beyond words. So it goes through a long list of different tantric cults and religious uh, perspectives, philosophical principles. In every case, it says the goddess is not this, not this. So, you know, obviously this, this harkens back to the Upanishads and this Neti Neti device of saying, uh, the Brahman is not this and not this, but this takes it to another level of sophistication. Um, this is influenced by the Krama Tantric tradition, which sees the goddess or a series of goddesses as the cyclical pulsing of awareness. So these aren't, you know, goddesses that are meant to be worshipped in temples. These are, these are the true manifestations of, of the awareness of all living beings. And so, um, yeah, it's just a, an utterly fascinating passage, probably unique worldwide. There are um, there's certainly traditions in, in European history, uh, mystical traditions called the Via Negativa, which do a similar thing. They say God is not this and God is not that and God is not that. Um, but yeah, never, to, ne never about a goddess. So this, this might be the only source in the history of, of humanity that, um, that applies this way of thinking to to a goddess it's um you know when you read it it's i mean if assuming one has any sort of sensibility for poetry or 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 or, or, or the beyond you know you know she is neither primordial matter nor spirit nor the limited knowledge found in the scriptures she's not time nor limited agency mm -hmm. nor the limited view of causation nor that passion that derives from karmic necessity she is neither illusion nor the great illusion called pure knowledge she is not ishwara and not sadashiva and not shakti and not shiva I mean, like, it, it, it's beyond, beyond, right? Like, <laughs> she, and it even says at one point she's not Kali. So, you know, even us calling her Kali is a little bit misleading because the text is asserting that any category that humans can come up with, any kind of verbal category is, is just a construct, that, mm -hmm. that the goddess is something beyond what we can conceive and that we have to, it's in some sense, just leave it at that. And um, at least in terms of this anthology, uh, Kali is both the alpha and the omega, it seems. And you start off with a form of Kali and you end with one. So that's, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if that was intentional, but it's, it's uh, you know, for someone who enjoys studying uh, frame narratives, <laughs> those, sort of, those sorts of things come to mind. Um, great. I mean, there's so much there. Um, the... There is a, a plethora of, of, of regional uh, linguistic uh, material here. I mean, what folks who don't study South Asia don't realize is that there's quite literally demonstrably more diversity in, in South Asia than all of Europe, easily. Oh, ab absolutely. Without question. And it's, it's so rich. Um, I mean, even, even still, I tell my students this uh, in every class, there's, you know, there's something like 1,500 living languages in India. So and in the past, it was even more. Um, so it's just incredibly diverse, like so many different cultures, so many different people brought together. So, um, yeah, there's, there's just this, these rich traditions of, of goddess stories and goddess uh, practices that, that I think people deserve to know about. I mean, of course, there's scholarship out there on all of this, um, on most of this, but uh, it's, it's often written for a more educated audience or, you know, it's single books about particular traditions. So, you know, you can get Rachel Thel McDermott singing to the goddess, these wonderful translations of uh, devotional poems from Bengal, but, you know, that's a, a single goddess and it's a single uh, region. So I wanted to bring together all of this diversity well you know not all of it but but sort of capture a 
um, a selection of it in order to um, you know make this available to to students and general readers. Oh, it's uh, it's certainly a, a welcome addition uh, to the library of specialists, generalists, uh, people interested in the goddess. And timing is good for this. Uh, we didn't plan it this way, but the Navaratri festival is coming up. Oh, yes. <laughs> so it should be interesting to learn about different uh, goddesses or different forms of the goddess. The last question I'd like to ask you, you can feel free to answer in an armchair capacity or, or from your expertise or from the, from, from the anthology, but you know, one or many, you know, you say something very insightful in your, in your preface. And I think many of us have internalized, we may or may not have articulated it. And many people who study Hinduism in a comparative lens, uh, this is, becomes a snag, this whole monotheism versus polytheism. And this insight you share, I can't remember how you phrase it exactly, but it's along the lines of, you know, in Hinduism, uh, things can be polytheistic and monotheistic. And there's not really a sense of, there's not a need to, to reconcile that in the same way. And if I'm putting words in your mouth, by all means, correct me, but what would you say about this idea of, well, are these examples of forms of the goddess or are these uh, uh, multiple uh, variegated different goddesses? Right, so it's a, it's a complex question. It depends on who you're asking. So, I mean, if you're asking me, mm, um, you know, certainly I, I regard when, when a goddess has a different name, I tend to regard them as a different identity. Um, typically that's associated with different appearances. And so, you know, I, I think that the differences do matter. I don't think we can just roll it all together and say, it's, it's all one thing. It is one, I mean, so the, many of the texts present all the goddesses as ultimately a single Shakti. So, you know, that's, that's very clear in several of the sources. But at the same time, I don't think that we can just ignore the differences either that show up in all these, these different manifestations. So it's a matter of perspective. And if you're looking at it from an insider or an outsider perspective, but I think the, the, the point that I was making in the introduction that you, you were calling attention to is that Many people come to study uh, Hinduism thinking that, you know, with this, this lens of either or, it's, it's, it's one thing or it's another. It's either monotheistic or polytheistic, and it has to be one or the other. But, you know, Hinduism is wonderful for that uh, going beyond this, 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 these diametrical opposites, this sort of binary of this or that. It says, no, the, the goddess can be both this and that. She, she can be both one and many. So... Um, you know, this is, this is what we're seeing in many of the sources in the, um, the source on the indefinable Kali, for example, it's, it's pointing out very heavily that conceptual categories um, are, are not going to do it, that, that the divine, it goes beyond what we can, can imagine. Uh, there can be no better note to end on than that, <laughs> I imagine. Okay. I hope this was as fun for me as it was for you. Um, Absolutely. Great. So for those of you out there listening, we've been speaking uh, with Dr. Michael Sluber, uh, who's the editor of a really exciting new um, uh, anthology of, of, of goddess narratives. It's called A Garland of Forgotten Goddesses, Tales of the Feminine Divine from India and Beyond, uh, University, of Cal sorry, University of California Press uh, 2020. Comes out in a couple months. Uh, the links are in the podcast description. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the program today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was until, a pleasure. Yeah, <laughs> likewise. Until next time, uh, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating um, the many faces of the goddess.